I was sitting in the jail with these young people around me. They were in a pre-release employment program. And I was only there representing an, an AA meeting. And they, their employment outcomes were hopeless. So I thought, why don't I take them out and bring them and get them a job as a recruiter, I could just find the jobs in construction or something. And I knew construction people. So that was the moment. I knew within you know, a few days of being there that these guys should be able to get a better outcome in life. They were wonderful. It was just their behavior was all drug and alcohol related. And that's why they were there. So if they could abstain from drugs and alcohol, they would have a phenomenal chance of success, which is the sort of theory of Mainworks. Hey folks, I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus and Conversation, a podcast that highlights inspiring business leaders who have found inventive ways to align purpose and profit. Today, I'm joined by Margot Walsh, the founder and CEO of Mainworks, a recruiting and staffing company that's challenging the norms and providing meaningful opportunities for re-entering citizens and those recovering from substance abuse and addiction. Her model provides folks in these communities a fresh chance by connecting them to high-paying construction jobs. After a successful career in HR, Margot noticed that the long-established hiring practice was leaving a large segment of the workforce's potential unfulfilled. Recruiters are often told to reject applicants that have been charged with a felony because they are perceived as risky, a perception that Margot understands. However, she also recognizes a latent talent and strong work ethic within the reentry community and is working to challenge the business world to take a harder look at the population. These considerations inspired her to disrupt the labor market by creating Mainworks, an early adopter of the B Corp model, which was the first company to specifically hire only felons. Margot then developed the Main Recovery Fund, a 501c3, to provide reentry community with necessary tools to retrain for those jobs in the long haul. Her own triumph over addiction uniquely prepared Margot to guide ex-prisoners through their recovery journeys, and her efforts have already reinvigorated the lives and careers of countless people. I'm excited to learn more about her story, so let's jump right in. Let's start with your background. Where are you from? Where's home? Uh, so my name is Margo Walsh, and I grew up in Cumberland, Maine, which is just outside of Portland. You're Maine through and through. Maine through <laughs> and through. Where's home now? In Maine. Can't leave. <laughs> the roots are too deep. And growing up, did you have any big dreams or career aspirations? What did you want to do when you grew up? I always wanted to do something on the water. Like I thought I'd be in the Coast Guard. Really? Yeah. Because I love boating and I'm pretty confident. I know all about, I love navigating. I love like, I love being on the water. I love the, the silence of being on the water. The isolation part of me loves being on the water. Yeah. And I suppose growing up with the beautiful coastline that is Maine, it's just in your blood. It's in your DNA. Yes. We're spoiled. It is literally, where I'm sitting now, it's within like a third of a mile, less, probably a tenth of a mile. So you end up going to college and studying psychology, right? I did. How did you end up there? What was that path like? It's interesting because my family, my parents moved to this country from Ireland. So we have this kind of wandering gene in our family. And we ended up in Maine, which is strangely very like Ireland in a lot of ways. 
my cousins were all going to this boarding school in Ireland. So I went off to boarding school in Ireland and that really was beautiful. And I, and I really wish I had stayed longer, but our two systems, the United States and the, the British system don't really correlate. And so I came back here, went to high school here. And so then I ended up graduating from our small town, beautiful sort of day school in Portland called Waynefleet, which actually was fantastic because they, they really involve students in a social project in your senior year. You have to work in the community, which I loved. So when I went to college, I knew I wanted to do psychology because I really thought after all was said and done that I would love to just learn more about people. I was always really interested in all sorts of people. And I, I, I tend to be the broker or like the um, peacemaker, I guess, yeah. and can talk really well to people of all different backgrounds. So I went to an all women's college. So we spent most of our time trying to get off campus and, <laughs> and hence I ended up spending a lot of time in New York city. And at the time it was the eighties, which was quite a time to be in New York. I can imagine. So I had the experience of the rural college and then the great city life. And so you end up in New York after school. Yes. My college actually has an internship with a bank that no longer exists. It's called Bankers Trust. It was bought by Deutsche Bank. One of the people there kept reaching back to our school to get an intern. And strangely, the project that she put me on was recruiting for diversity. And if you can think about that, it was in 1986. So there was really not a lot of diversity programming or, you know, this is the early stage of like recruiting for inclusivity and difference. It was really great. And that kind of um, informed my entire career thereafter. Um, After I graduated from college, I got a job at Goldman Sachs in their investment banking division, which was pretty big deal. And I was recruiting um, analysts and associates for the investment banking division. I felt like an imposter because I didn't have the academic background to to be at that table. I just had the um, ability to talk to a lot of people and I could make decisions quickly and also was able to match people to outcomes effectively. So I think that was the part of the recruiter in me. Amusingly, I think you left recruiting and banking right around when I went into banking <laughs> as an investment banker. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I was. I interned in 2001 and then graduated and went on to be an analyst in 2002 and did that for almost 10 years. Somehow, someway, kept on it. It's an incredible microcosm, frankly, of all of humanity because you know the mm-hmm. banking sector attracts people with incredible interpersonal skills and technical skills and innovators and really, really beautifully um, qualified people working throughout that organization. So that's cool that you had that experience also. You know, it's a real life MBA that you get in a year because you're working 80, 90, 100 yes. hours a week. But I learned so, so much. And you're right. I mean, I think the people that I had the privilege of working with, brilliant creative, interesting folks. And actually now, in retrospect, a lot of them are people that I have circled back to contact because a lot of them are doing the social innovation and environmental stewardship these days because everybody retires from Wall Street early. I didn't. I went on to move to Maine after having done some other things before 2000 and then moved to Maine in 2000 to raise my kids because I was determined to have my children have the same upbringing water sports and skiing that I had when I was growing up. And so that has panned out. And um, strangely, my older son is now the COO of our company. I want to talk about family business as part of this too in, in a second. But looking back at your time at Goldman, living in New York in that era, and you've been very candid about 
the lifestyle yeah. that was part and parcel of that of that industry, which I certainly can confirm. Yeah. <laughs> Give us a sense of what the lifestyle was outside of the bank that becomes part of your story and becomes part of the evolution of and the creation of Mainworks. Okay, well, I, it's really important. So thank you for asking. What happened in my life was that in high school, I was a, a high-performing athlete and academically I did okay. I always was able to get by and do pretty well in the subjects that I enjoyed. But I discovered drinking when I was 15. You know, Maine is notorious for these backwoods places where everybody congregates and has a bonfire. It all seemed sure. like everyone else was doing this. But for me, I always felt like everyone else went home and I was still chasing the what was next, whatever was supposed to happen next. And that is a, it's a really difficult position because I've learned now that most teenagers don't drink to excess. It didn't seem unusual for me because I surrounded myself with people who also drank to excess, but I was high performing. So it didn't feel like it was affecting my life. And I could sure. kind of sneak around and have this dual life of the nightlife and then the day life. And then day life, I'd be all put together and polished. And then at night, it would be just crazy. So I spent a lot of my life hungover, actually. And then it, that persisted all through New York, where, again, it was part of the fabric of the, yeah. of the um, lifestyle. I mean, Studio 54 is not for slouches. And I loved it and I couldn't get enough of it. But that's part of the thing that I think informs addiction is never knowing when to stop and never being able to stop when you felt like you should. And thankfully, I never did drugs. So I never had that like all night party thing, which I think that was fueled by other drugs in the 80s. Um, but so my dr drug of choice was always alcohol, wine. And then that, that actually made it feel more acceptable because it was just wine and it was, then it became more wine. And I always could identify with being somewhat out of control because I lived with a hangover most of the time as other drinkers can relate. But furthermore, when I had kids, it's really when I had to put it in reverse because I, you know, that was irreconcilable. My behavior as a mom was irreconcilable with what I knew parentage should include, which is, yeah not drinking and not driving to go get more booze while your kid is in the back seat. Like just was morally very difficult. I just really want to say that um, people who are in active alcoholism or addiction become used to living a double life and you have this forward facing life. And then you have the inner turmoil of your life, which is that irreconcilable guilt, shame, and remorse that associates mm -hmm. the sneaking around behavior that, is inevitable when you're dealing with alcohol or substances and you know that you're acting in a way that's not in Congress with how you're supposed to be acting. Yeah. So that sets up an automatic conflict emotionally. And it's really hard to live like that. It's exhausting. Yeah. How did you find an opportunity or the permission or the excuse or the request or the demand to change? So my... My sister was pretty instrumental in that because we had been at two weddings that summer and I had been really out of control at both weddings. And she kind of sat me down and she said, if, you're, if you continue to work to um, act and, and live this way, I can't have an authentic relationship with you because I'm allowing something that I 
fundamentally disagree with. And I was really pissed off at that. I thought that's, and of course I was self-righteous and thought, how dare you, which is classic alcoholic response to all that. But it really stuck with me. And then I had been seeing a psychiatrist because my mother had just passed away from a long-term illness. And I thought, oh, that's the problem. You know, it was just not being able to deal with conflict. or the, And so I, I sought counseling and that psychiatrist said, well, if you don't recognize alcohol as a problem, then I, I can't work with you. And I was really pissed at that, of course. That really struck with me because he said, if you want to continue meeting with me, you have to agree to not drink. And I couldn't. I couldn't do that. Yeah. And finally, on December 13th, 1997, I checked into rehab. And it was on the same day that, talking about facade management, this is on the same day that I had put like 175 perfect Christmas cards in the mail, like totally done up with the kids and the Mm -hmm. dog and the gold embossed lettering and everything. And then that very night I ended up in rehab. So there's the dichotomy. For so many people who have these kinds of stories, it's not always successful or certainly not successful the first time. I'm curious if you have a, a take on your experience in that process and how it worked for you and what might have helped you succeed. Probably my Catholic upbringing, because I don't identify really as a practicing Catholic at all anymore, but it is ingrained that you have this behavior pattern of either good or bad. And so my behavior was so categorically bad, the view of how I was acting was the opposite of good girl, and uh, so which is something I crave now that you know, I look way back on it. So that knowing that my um, behavior was antithetical to how I wanted to behave that time out in that rehab was the first time that I hadn't drank, period. Except when I was expecting my babies. For some reason, I had divine intervention that like, I was repelled by the smell of alcohol. Other than that, I went in once and I stopped then. And that is not a typical story. You're absolutely right. No. I and mean, that is really the exception because relapse happens. It's a fact of life. It's devastating because it's a matter of like putting yourself back together and then turning around and devastating your family and yourself again. And that that cycle, I just feel like I, I have such respect for people who have lived that kind of cycle because it takes such tenacity to keep going and to actually get up again. And so I'm really grateful for the fact that I had um, blackouts a lot when I was at my final few months of drinking. And so I knew unequivocally that I was an alcoholic. And that reality, I think, is what contributed to my success. Yeah. The way you talk about it, I think the way I know a lot of folks who, who work in or have lived through addiction, who who've, are battling it every day still, talk about it very clearly as uh, a disease. And I'm curious for your take on that, because I think that's, I've always found that so interesting. I think the way forward in our world is to study neurodiversity and brain science more thoroughly to understand the predisposition towards addiction that exists. And I definitely think that similar to diabetes or cancer, alcoholism is a disease that is hereditary. You can always follow the bouncing ball and find addiction right around the alcoholic or addict. And of course, there's exceptions to everything, but I believe it absolutely that it is a disease and um, that the only medicine that I've ever seen that's successful in treating that addiction is abstinence. And that is hard. It's really hard to accept that that's the way forward because that's a whole lifestyle. That's a life. That's a lifestyle. It's a lifetime of not drinking. And you've spoken in the past about the rehab program in a broad sense, and and the, the community, the people that you 
met along the way. And I'm, I'm curious if any of those conversations and relationships, you look back and think that informs what who you've become, what you do, how you view the world. Definitely. I went to rehab and I sat there in a smoking room because everybody smoked then. And that was all you did, frankly, in rehab. And I found these people that I would have never, I would have crossed the street to avoid them. And then here we all are, lumped in together. And I found these people that I had everything in common with. They didn't dress like me. They didn't have the same education. They didn't come from the similar background. But essentially, as a person and as a, as a, a broken-hearted person, we all had that in common, having let ourselves down and having let our families down and having never been able to stop using this substance, whatever it is. Those people are so important to me. And I also found that um, to be able to identify to people that, with people that are going through that same transformation process, there's an incredible sense of kinship. And I think that our society is really yearning for that, like the, the connectivity that happens in these circumstances. Like in for my case, it was AA. That was a, the 12-step group that I pursued. But I see this happening now, you know, that young people are so isolated and I would have been totally isolated had it not been for that group. So I think that people are really seeking community and engagement mm-hmm. with other people, especially if they have a similar experience. Yeah. So in that time in your life, a lot's happening <laughs> and eventually you make your way back to Maine. Do you want to give us a little bit of that Uh, connect those dots? Sure, of course. And so leaving rehab and going back to my job was devastating because at that time I had, you know, had young kids. And so I was consulting at that time. I actually was working at Lehman Brothers in New York and then as a consultant. And then I also worked at this place called Hewitt, which is an HR consulting firm. And I loved it there. And I had left as a well-regarded, impactful person professionally and I came back broken and with this sense of this shame that followed me everywhere. And so I really, it was irreconcilable. I couldn't stay. I didn't, I didn't want to stay. I didn't feel comfortable. My whole world had become this recovery world and I was trying to make it part of my real life, which was so difficult. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. So then we moved to Maine anyway, because my parents had just been, one had passed away and my father was um, suffering with like later stage life, long-term illness things. So it was a really cool opportunity just to say, let's move to Maine. And my husband at the time was really supportive of that. And so we raised our kids as I had planned. We lived like right on the water and they learned how to ski from the age of like two. I would have never been able to do that had I been using, Yeah. period. None of that. And it's also kind of in this time, I think, where the idea for MainWorks starts. So we can get to kind of talking about the company a little bit. But do you remember the moment you had the big idea? When I was sitting in the jail. I was sitting in the jail with these young people around me. They were in a pre-release employment program. And I was only there representing an AA meeting. And I, you know, I, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go into that jail. And no one used to go to the jail meeting. So I was kind of the last person to show up at the jail meeting. And there were like 12 inmates usually there who were, as I said, in a pre-release employment setting. So they were in their final stages of incarceration and they were passing through this organization where they could get ready to be released. And they, their employment outcomes were hopeless. They were working across the street at you know fast food places or this one kitchen that was a notorious drug den. So I thought, why don't I take them out and bring them and get them a job as a recruiter, I could just find the jobs in construction or something. And I knew construction people. So that was the moment. I knew within you know, a few days of being there that these guys should be able to get a better outcome in life 
they were wonderful. It was just their behavior was all drug and alcohol related, and that's why they were there. So if they could abstain from drugs and alcohol, they would have a phenomenal chance of success, which is the sort of theory of MainWorks. Yeah, so give us the elevator pitch to explain MainWorks. So MainWorks is an employment company specializing in industrial construction. We employ people in early reentry from jail and prison and recovery from substance use disorder. And we have fantastic outcomes with people. They end up getting hired in many cases by our clients. But the important thing to me is when I first started at MainWorks in 2011, in order to work at MainWorks, you had to be a felon. So it was that disruptive idea that no longer would I accept people wouldn't hire felons. I said, okay, if companies don't hire felons and it's acceptable that they don't hire felons, I will. That was the big game changer. So there was no other private company in the world that had a business model of felon employment. And it was pretty dicey, actually. And I had a lot of like, you know, people raise their eyebrows all the time, especially my neighbors in my neighborhood on the ocean. Here I was like going into the jail every day and picking up this group of guys who were from all over the country and putting them out of job sites. But I was determined to turn that accepted practice upside down. And then it became justice involved. They were either felons or having been incarcerated in county jail. And then the opioid pandemic started in 2013. And it turned out that every single person that I had met who had been incarcerated was there for behavior related to drugs and alcohol. So it made sense then to start to say, okay, well, we'll, we'll um, open up the parameters to include people who are also in recovery. So we've been hiring people who are traditionally very difficult to employ, and P.S., they are very difficult to employ for so many reasons, but the benefit and the goodwill that has come from it, my legacy, I guess, is how many people's lives have been changed because they worked at MainWorks, and I'm really proud of that. Yeah. You said something a moment ago. You were determined to do it. You were determined to disrupt this model. Why? Where did that determination come from? The same need to go to school in Ireland, the same need to be different, the same need to be like doing something that was way out and different from everybody else. Like I never complied with any protocol or program or, you know, I was always in trouble when I was little and it was because I wouldn't do what was being asked. So I think the strange thing is that my my disability, my attentional issues, which weren't diagnosed at the time because I, you know, I lived in the days when they didn't diagnose ADHD, I turned it into a superpower and said, you know, I'll accept these differences and capitalize on them. Yeah. And I mean, as I can uh, attest as a multi-time founder and entrepreneur, you can't do it by yourself. You can't do this by yourself. And I know, you know, you started MainWorks in your kitchen table in Portland, but you had stakeholders that were actively engaged and stakeholders that would probably also raise eyebrows for, for people, like knowing who you kind of engaged to make this work. What were the communities that you found most helpful in building this business? The jail system was really encouraging because they thought this is great because these guys have a way better outcome. That was one. The other one was our stakeholders in the state government. So 
I got the attention pretty quickly of like the Small Business Association because mm-hmm. I was a single woman, head of household, started a felon employment company. So we got on the radar of small business. Like I worked with a SCORE mentor, when that's the um, Society of Retired Executives. I definitely pulled in trained professionals in the areas that I didn't have any expertise, like how to run a business, how to write a budget, all that kind of stuff. So because of my association with those organizations, I got a lot of notoriety through um, you know these different awards for this and that. And then in 2013, I was researching, there's got to be companies out there that have social impact. Who are they and what are they doing? And I discovered that Patagonia was a B Corp, and I had never heard of B Corp. We followed the B Corp thing immediately, and I applied right away for because it was, it was quite an easy application relatively at that time. So I applied immediately, and then, wow, that opened up an entirely new group of people because there was precedence for using business as a force for change. Yeah. And then further down the road, I started a nonprofit with my sister to offset the unbelievable cost of all of the needs of people in early recovery and reentry. So that was in 2017. So once we started to put together a board of directors and all that stuff for the nonprofit, we started to reach into private wealth and people who were really doing this at a macro level. But we just keep going with this basic model of putting people to work in a dignified setting. You speak of it so clearly. Every time I listen to you, you're very clear. Like This is an employment company. This is a company. This is a company. I suspect that some critics or commentary you know, defaults to thinking about this more as a social service and not as an actual business. Of course. But it's a business. It's a business. And the reason we stuck with construction industry was because it was merit-based and everybody at the construction industry had already been arrested maybe once or also drank too much. Construction is a very accepting universe. And my construction clients have been amazing. Not to say that all of our clients identify with that way, but they are used to dealing with people who are not coming from a pristine background. So um, we stuck with construction and I stuck with a private business in order that our employees were not working for a charity case. They weren't working for a nonprofit that they were being considered as other. Because you don't want to put felons in a nonprofit outcome. Why would you do that? That makes them less than immediately. We have a reasonable return, but it's not a, we're not, we're not going to do it. No one's coming after us to invest in us as a 10x outcome, that's for sure. But you have had good, good growth, and so I'm curious what you see as the secret to your growth. Our growth is directly correlates with the positive outcomes that people have experienced by coming to Mainworks. So Mainworks is the company it's the employer. So we are in three states now and moving into probably Connecticut by the end of the year. So we're in Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and we can keep our brand Mainworks because um, people recognize it already within the construction sector. So it's like Arizona iced tea. There's no reason to change your brand. People know it's a construction staffing company. So the growth is because we have a great product, which is, you know, organized, tight, well-presented construction labor who are career oriented. So that's a great product and the demand is endless. Yeah. I want you to paint a picture of what your day looks like. Like what do you how do you actually start the day in the building of Mainworks? So it's different now, but the, how it was was getting in my minivan and having my high school student's son get in his Subaru Outback and we would go and pick up people all over the place, mostly at the jail. Imagine that, you know, your, your high school junior going off to pick up a bunch of guys at the pre-release and bring them to construction sites. But he learned a lot that way. 
And then the day would start and then all the nonsense would start, you know, the guy who didn't show up for work or, you know, forgot his hard hat or all that stuff. So it's a lot of cleaning up behind people and that still happens. That's the operations function at MainWorks. It's really never changed that much. It's highly organized now, but that's basically the role that I started out and then people replicate what I used to do, which was that. And at the end of the day, you do the exact same thing. Bring everybody home, do payroll, all those operational things. But now, because of the nonprofit, my day has to do a lot more with policy and impacting things at the macro level. For example, um, how to spend the opioid settlement money is very hot on my radar. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of it, unfortunately, is being squandered. And so that's what I do right now. I definitely spend more of my time trying to build coalition among nonprofits and synergist for-profits that are working towards all rowing in the same direction. And that is improving the quality of life for people who have struggled. I want to go back to that vision at the very start of that answer. I think I don't want any listener to not grasp the picture that you just painted of in a minivan, I presume knowing when construction starts very, very early in the morning, how are you finding, recruiting, engaging, keeping people coming back every day? Like um, The fact that people came every day had to do with the fact that they were still incarcerated. So while they're under the care and custody of the state of Maine, in that case, they were highly predictable. And you could expect that they were fed and that they were had, had slept and that, you know, so all those things. That's why the the jail program actually was quite an incredible control. Then we had a really wobbly time after, as we were growing and these sober houses started to come into the market, because that was um, another source of where we could find people to work. But we have huge attrition in the first two weeks. The industry standard for um, staffing in general is like 50% attrition. Ours is higher because we're working with an even more difficult population. So engagement is really critically difficult for us. But what we did was we literally drove around and picked people up and then word of mouth would carry that their friend wanted a job too. And, you know, they were impressed with the outcomes that they were working at these incredibly high brow construction companies that were very well organized. So there was a sense of purpose and belonging that they had from the beginning. And I think that is an, an economic viability that they had to have or else they didn't have a plan B. There was no plan B for right. people that are living on the margin like that. Yeah. So you mentioned you know, in the early days, your son's in the, the car behind you from time to time and, and now is a major part of the business. Did you expect this to be a family business? Oh my God, not at all. But in 2017 with the nonprofit and in 2018, actually, there was a moment where we thought, oh, and everybody was rallying around and thinking, Mainworks is great. And oh, wow, have you, have you like talk to them because they're in the middle of growing and they're diversifying. And so I thought, oh, well, this is great. We will diversify. Let's start our own property services or landscape division. And then a, then a philanthropist said, can you bring your business model to Tennessee? So I was like, okay. So here was that moment where you get overscattered and then you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, we got to pull this all back. And the person who said, you've got to pull this all back was my son who had just graduated from University of Denver with his finance degree. And so 2019, he comes home for summer. And he's like, mom, Nothing about your business makes sense from a financial standpoint because whoever's telling you that you should continue to get these loans for trucks and buying all this equipment, there's no plan to repay that. Like you can't just you can't just take out loans without a bulletproof plan to repay it with a profit margin built in, or else you're just whistling Dixie. So I took every word that he said so seriously, and I still to this day respect his insight. 
So we started the 501c3 nonprofit and we stopped doling out these other uh, services. And I mean, you, you mentioned it briefly, the 501c3, the main recovery fund. Yeah. How is that the complement? Because I think there's probably quite a few things that or synergies that help the for-profit business sort of thrive and also help the individuals yeah. in the, the nonprofit ecosystem. Right. No one would argue that our business model is low profit enough where aligning with a nonprofit, especially with our social impact, made a ton of sense. And I actually think, just to digress for one second, like that's the way forward, frankly, that there's this third lane between for-profit companies and nonprofit sector that should be encouraged to collaborate really intentionally. So that, to me, is um, a possibility for one of the policy things that I'm hoping to pursue now. But um, it made a lot of sense because we identified that the issues that people needed when they were first starting a new job was outerwear, boots, coats, Carhartt pants, which we now get donated, you know, work pants to look like they were properly organized to show up at these job sites. And so we made sure that their kit was all perfect. And then furthermore, they needed rent assistance. They needed a ride to work to and from every day, which we have averaged to be $25 per ride per person. It's a lot. Yeah, It's hugely expensive. And they also need things like access to dental care. No one's teeth have been managed ever if they're an addict in recovery. No one has ever gone in for a mental health or even a physical health assessment. So we, we um, do an intake form in a typical nonprofit way to say, what do you need? How can we help you? So that's the function of the nonprofit. None of that would happen at a normal company. Sure. We're maximizing our impact by raising money to do those things. That's incredible. The transportation thing, I, I've heard more and more recently. And I, I was talking to a friend recently who has been working in a similar space and said, you know, they have these great outcomes with folks for a week or two, but the minute they get a flat tire, they don't show up. And on the one hand, there's no easy solution to cover that cost. And then on the other hand, corporate America isn't culturally competent in ways to cope with that or to, to manage that or support that. And so we're setting people up for failure in so many contexts. That's such a great example because that happens to us once a month. We have a flat tire and we buy a new tire. Yeah. When if the second tire looks dicey, then we work with our tire company that is actually really invested and loves us. They're all over the Northeast. I'll say it, Town Fair Tire, because they've been amazing. And they're, they're, Give them a shout out. Yeah, I will. <laughs> I mean, and Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts. And so if ever we have a flat tire or issues with any of our vehicles, they rush in and offer us like rock bottom nonprofit pricing. They've been so collaborative. So we've built these associations, you know, across the spectrum of things that could go wrong. And we figure it out and anticipate those things will happen. And so how can we structure a response to those things? Like dentures, for example. That's an epic undertaking. And we don't say that to everybody when they first get there. Because if they're not going to stay for more than two weeks, they're probably just going to go right back out to the old lifestyle. So, you know, there's no point in intervening. But they know that we're here. And, they, and we have many, many people who come back three, four, eight times. And they're always welcome. Yeah. I think most Americans that don't have exposure to the reentry community have no actual sense of the humanity of that person or those people. What are the biggest misconceptions that your average American has that you found to be completely untrue? That there are bad people, that they're irredeemable, 
And that is not true. Because in my experience anyway, and, and this is true across the country, first of all, we had the war on drugs. So that, so that incarcerated people for pot possession and all these other things. So that's one reason why people ended up incarcerated. And then there's a lot of systemic racism that that's a fact across the country. That's another reason people are incarcerated. But especially in Maine, I asked the the commissioner the other a couple of weeks ago, like, what's the number of people that are in jail because of or derivative of substance use issues? And it's like 85%. So if you look at it that way, then the theory is if you take the drugs and alcohol out, then you have the potential of someone who's not going to behave that way. Because people all understand humanity, this country, we all know what it looks like when people are behaving badly with drugs and alcohol. It's a, you know, it's car accidents, it's involuntary manslaughter, it's aggravated assault. And combinations of certain drugs and alcohol are deadly, like really, really lethal. Like most of the DV assaults in the state take place with the presence of benzos and alcohol, which create a blackout. Some people don't know what they did. And I hear that story all the time. It doesn't excuse the behavior. And a lot of time that like gravely bad behavior might have just been a fluke. If that's their default, then they need more than jail. They need intensive mental health care. But that's more of the exception, frankly. So I just feel like um, the misconception is that people in jail are bad. And the, the fact is that all of us could have gotten arrested once in our life for something we were up to. Or if you hung around with me, <laughs> then every one of us could have gotten arrested for some reason or another. And it's Pollyanna to say, oh, no, I would have never even gotten in trouble. Maybe not. But for the most part, I think anybody who has drank at all and drove is walking a very fine line. So I think that the misconception is that people are bad and that people are they won't be able to be rehabilitated. Yeah. The company itself does, I mean, it's just an incredible company, and I'm so excited to have this conversation. You talk about how easy it was to to decide to be a B Corp. I'm curious what advice you'd have for entrepreneurs out there who are looking at starting a business and maybe want to align their purpose in life or their desire to do good with, you know, with their career. What kind of advice would you give to people who are thinking about being entrepreneurs? You know, what's the greatest part about the B Corp path? So if you're interested in macro change, I would just say deeply get involved with who's doing it well already and try not to recreate the wheel mm -hmm. and expect that, you know, your contribution could be probably even better working for one of the existing companies and then you could spin off on your own. I think it's really hard. I'll tell you from experience. It's really expensive to start your own business. It's a lifestyle for sure, but I love the B Corp community. So I would definitely take time to research who's doing what from a B Corp standpoint. And if you think you have an idea, go in and talk to a SCORE representative and just say, because that's what they encourage, the back of the napkin stage. Like, what is it that you want to do? And let's talk it through. That's one resource or any small business organization in your state, like the Department of Economic Development will have resources that can refer you. Yeah, SBAs and yeah. yeah. As we get close to the end, I kind of want to ask a couple just big picture questions about your view of the world. Or, or the first is just what motivates you to get up every morning and keep doing what you're doing? Because it is hard. It's a lot of work. Oh man, the return on it. Everyone that works at Mainworks came through Mainworks, except for my son. So imagine that. So my staff are the people who showed up broken, and now they're running it. That keeps me motivated. Yeah, A young woman came in the other day. She just got her CDL with the assistance of our nonprofit. And she came in in her huge truck. 
to show off to the guys because she's like driving trucks bigger than most of them. So it's all of those individual stories. We also have a fire circle every Friday morning that we used to have it every single day, but now we only have it on Friday since COVID. And people come together around that fire pit for so many different reasons, but it's there to kind of organize the workforce and who's there today and who's going to be working. But community partners come all the time because they find it fascinating that this kind of countercultural thing is happening right in the middle of Portland. And people want to be there because they want to feel like they belong somewhere. And I think someone just said today that, um, you know, that song, the boys are all right. There's a new phrase out there that's the boys are not all right. The boys are disconnected and lonely. And COVID has displaced a whole generation of young men. And it's really, really daunting. We have to do something as a society to address that because the lack of college or high school in those COVID years, there's nothing that can really make up for that. So I think we should reinvigorate the Civilian Conservation Corps and ask people to spend time in the wilderness together to like build things. Because otherwise, if it's not suggested pretty strongly, it won't happen people just default to TikTok, which is catastrophic. Yeah. That's a good segue to my last question. You know, we had COVID, we have food insecurity, we have the opioid uh, epidemic, we have the changing climate. All of these things are dominating the front pages most days. And I think for a lot of folks, it's overwhelming and it's hard to think that you can change the world in a positive way in the face of all that negativity, in the face of all all those headlines. And yet, people like you are are shining examples of just that, changing the world. And so I'm curious what advice you would give to help Americans or or people in general beat back those feelings of defeatism and take the steps that they want to take to make the world a better place. Well, it's really funny because any 12-step program will identify three tranches for the 12 steps divided into four each, right? Give up the substance, clean up your act, and start giving back. So they boils it down to accept what the issue is, find out what your part in that is, and then turn your agenda around to helping solve the issues, right? So, and I also say that in rehab, I used to always say when I talk in rehabs or whatever, I always say like, in the dead of winter, you would never believe that spring was going to come. It just, it's an irreconcilable reality. The darkness of winter, you would never, if you were, if you didn't know about spring, you would not expect that it was going to be this technicolor bloom and everything would be coming up and how exciting that is. Like, so I think it's just a matter of holding on and helping someone else in the meantime with the hope and expectation that things will change and get better. But we are the change. And frankly, to me, one of the biggest problems that we're facing right now is the divisiveness in our politics right now that is totally untenable. And um, I think the best way to address that conflict is by meeting people in the middle and is to find a common ground because our commonality is way more profound than our differences. So I'd say seek your higher ground with people, even talk to people that you know you categorically disagree with. How can you talk to them? What could you say that would break the ice? And that's your job, I think. That's our job. Not to just accept that this runaway train of division, because the outcome for that is really grim. Yeah. I'd say find your way forward by collaborating with people, no matter what their political ideology. 
Thanks to Margo for joining me on today's episode. Consensus and Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode is produced by Will Gatchel and Jeff Rock. Executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker and strategist Patrick Gallagher. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. We'll see you next week.